Looking to add another dance podcast to your weekly rotation? Subscribe now to the Conversations on Dance podcast. Hosted by former Miami City Ballet dancers Rebecca King-Ferraro and Michael Sean Breeden, Conversations on Dance takes you behind the scenes of the ballet and dance worlds in chats with dancers, choreographers, educators, and more. A catalog of over 250 episodes means there is a lot to binge, with new conversations coming every week. Subscribe to Conversations on Dance wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more about them at conversationsondancepod.com and follow them on social media at Conversations on Dance. dance friends and welcome to the dance edit podcast i'm margaret fuhrer and i'm lydia murray we are editors at dance media and this week we will talk about the 25th anniversary of the broadway revival of chicago and the role that show has played in both shaping the way musical theater dance looks and also in cementing bob fossey's legacy We will discuss a fascinating story about a club in Glasgow that is using dancers' body heat to generate renewable energy. And we will talk a little about what makes a good, quote-unquote, dance costume um, from the perspectives of multiple dance world creative folks. Um, I'm going to keep the housekeeping super brief this week. I just wanted to give you all a quick reminder to rate and review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening platform of choice. We're especially into reviews, um, first of all, because we just love hearing your thoughts. And second, because they can actually help more dance nerds find this little podcast family that we've built. So if you have a minute, please do let us know how you're feeling about what we're making. All right, now it's time for our usual dance headline rundown. Here we go. An inquest has heard that the choreographer Liam Scarlett, who passed away this year, took his own life after feeling humiliation over facing sexual misconduct allegations, uh, The Guardian reported. Scarlett had been a dancer with the Royal Ballet beginning in 2005, then became its artist-in-residence in 2012 and was accused in 2019. This story continues to be devastating. Um, We'll link to the Guardian article that has more about the inquest in the show notes. The issues plaguing the global supply chain have not spared the dance world. Last week, Chicago's Harris Theater said they had been forced to cancel planned performances of Akram Khan's Xenos after shipping delays held up the production set. And there's a bigger conversation to be had here about how the supply chain problems are affecting dance more broadly. We know our magazines have at least one story in the works about those effects, so stay tuned. The Maori tribe Ngati Toa is calling for anti-vaccine proponents to stop using its ceremonial dance. The tribe has legal control of its unique form of the haka, called the kamate, which is meant to show tribal respect and unity. Brian Tamaki, who is a right-wing activist and member of two Maori tribes, was believed to be planning to teach the Kamate Haka to anti-vaccine protesters. Okay, shifting to the happier news portion of the headline rundown now. This year's Out 100 list, which honors queer and trans people who are making change, includes a whole bunch of great dance artists. The ever-fabulous Ariana DeBose is one of the issue's cover stars, and then the list also features Jojo Siwa, who is absolutely everywhere, 
choreographers Sean Bankhead and Sean Dorsey, Native American dancers Sean Snyder and Adrian Stevens, and the dance folks of Pride House LA. That's Molly Gray and Kent Boyd and Jekka Jane and Garrett Clayton. I think I'm actually missing a few even. There's so much dance on that lineup. I just love to see it. So we have the full list for you in the show notes. The Broadway revival of For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide slash When the Rainbow Is Enough, which will be directed by Camille A. Brown, has a premiere date. Previews will begin on March 4th, 2022, and the show will open on March 24th at the Booth Theater, where the original play debuted in 1976. Oh, can't wait to see the brilliance Camille's going to bring to that revival. That's so exciting. I know. Okay, so our last headline item. Cheetah Rivera and the Art Attack Foundation have created the Graciela Danielle Dance Scholarship, which is named for Tony-honored choreographer Graciela Danielle, to support young dancers. The scholarship will be offered to dancers age 14 to 20 of all disciplines, with applications opening in February 2022. Danielle has, of course, had a huge impact on Broadway, and she and Rivera have a a long history together, which includes performing in the original company of Chicago, where Danielle created the role of Hanyak, and Cheetah, of course, originated Velma Kelly. And I did not even plan it, but that is actually kind of a perfect perfect segue segue, (laughs) into our first discussion segment today. This week, the Broadway revival of Chicago celebrated its 25th anniversary on November 14th. And to mark that anniversary, the New York Times talked to a bunch of people who helped shape this revival, including some very famous Roxy's and Velma's. I mean, Rivera herself and B.B. Newirth and Brandy Norwood were on the list. Um... Chicago is now, it's basically a New York City landmark, and it's also famous for rotating celebrities through its lead roles, but its first production back in 1975 actually got a pretty mixed reception. So the luminaries in this time story had really interesting things to say about the evolution of critical opinion, for starters, and also about just how important and ranking was to making that revival such a success. I mean, I miss Anne ranking so much. Yeah, I know. I mean, just what a what a towering figure. Yeah. And the shift in critical opinion that happened with Chicago is interesting. When the revival happened in 1996, the critic Ben Brantley was one public figure who praised it. And he wrote that when the, the play opened in 1975, it had seemed a little bit too cold to really be loved. It was mm-hmm. dark. It was kind of cynically and brazenly about murder, greed, corruption, etc. But also in, in 75, it was overshadowed by plays like A Chorus line, which was new at the time, um, along with older, more established favorites like Cabaret in Oklahoma. I mean, you could not find two shows more tonally different than Chicago and A Chorus Line. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it, it, it says a lot about, I guess, like the critical climate at that moment where like earnest, open hearted shows like Chorus Line were in vogue and like gimlet eyed shows like Chicago weren't were not yet. Which is interesting because I feel like movies of that period were sort of further evolved in a lot of ways. They were already exploring the way that like cynicism can tell some truths that earnestness can't. And maybe that's why Fosse's cabaret film, which actually came out a few years before the Chicago Broadway production, succeeded where Chicago didn't. Mm. Um, then, of course, by 1996, the whole culture was thoroughly on board with Fosse's brand of like darkly funny storytelling. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting observation. That that definitely makes sense. I was thinking in terms of culture or pop culture and current events and how there were kind of these really 
you know, dark things that were dominating the news and dominating, you know, just mm-hmm. pop culture. The the Vietnam War was ending around that time and, you know, the Nixon, mm-hmm. you know, Watergate and all that stuff was happening. It seems like when when that kind of thing happens, people can either gravitate toward those sort of darker themes or they kind of want a relief. Escape. Um, yeah, yeah, some kind of escape. And I don't know whether for whatever reason, the theater-going crowd kind of leaned more toward, you know, earnestness. And I, I don't know, but... I, I liked John Kander's quote that kind of touched on that in the Time story. Um, mm-hmm. He said, there are two ways of dealing with catastrophe. One is you can pick up banners and yell about it. And the other is to do the same thing by simply holding the evil up to ridicule and making an audience feel entertained before they realize what it is they're seeing. Which, yeah. like, that's Fosse in a nutshell, the latter. And that's mm. I think that's a really hard thing to do in dance specifically, because I don't know, I feel like dance by its nature, it's easier for it to be open and vulnerable, but to be able to physically embody like that, his sardonic sense of humor, I think that was Fosse's genius or part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it almost seems like we might be a little bit more open to that now, because mm-hmm. we've seen that We've seen that in dance and we've just seen that, I, I feel like I keep saying culturally, but we have kind of seen it, um, I think, yeah. culturally more, that kind of willingness to to look at ourselves through a different lens and to be more self-critical and to maybe be more open, you know, to, to seeing kind of these negative aspects of, of how society can be, really. Yeah. Antiheroes are our bread and butter now. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like with the pandemic, we've just seen such dark sides of humanity um, that we maybe mm-hmm. wanted to deny or ignore. And this is, it's still relevant. And that it, it's been relevant through so many different eras, which is also part of the appeal. Yeah. It's one of those shows that seems to speak to the times, like no matter what times you're living in (laughs) there's there's always that point of connection yeah the themes are just the issues and themes are just timeless yeah let's talk about the the quote-unquote stunt casting too because i Mm. i think there's been a lot of like eye rolling over the years as people like i mean i remember like when ashley simpson in particular came in to play roxy everyone was a little like oh here we go and Mm. I get it. I mean, the sense that a show is like grasping for relevance can make you feel a little suspicious, maybe. Right. On the other hand, I feel like Fosse himself would have loved that so much. Like, mm. bringing in celebrities to razz up a sort of like long running, maybe a little bit tired musical that is so in line with the actual world of Chicago. Right. Um, and I think some of those stars, like Brandy in particular, brought so much real value and insight to the show. Like, mm just the tongue-in-cheek meta-ness of seeing this huge success story in real life, like Brandy playing this unsuccessful striver like Roxy. Yes. That's some great built-in tension. I think she really leaned into that. Yeah, agreed. I, I haven't seen um, Brandy's portrayal of Roxy, but I you know, read about it in the article and elsewhere. But yeah, I think bringing in those those other kinds of artists really helps to, I mean, not just you know expand the production's audience, but they, they definitely bring you know, some some uniquely important qualities, I think. And I like that there's some creative variety there. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, not to call any of these uh, entertainers lowbrow, because, you know, that's not the case. But for some of them who come from areas like reality TV, that's still not considered, you know, high art, just generally mm-hmm. speaking, 
uh, that does fall in line with that fusion of high and low that Fosse, you know, was so so known for. That's so important to his work. Totally. Yeah, Anne Ranking was instrumental in adapting the original play for the revival uh, because she was so mm-hmm. familiar with the choreography and the spirit of Fosse's style. And her direction to the performers was so warm and generous that it helped fine-tune the production. And as the Times article also mentions, there was initially little interest in bringing Chicago back to Broadway because there wasn't enough spectacle like in other Mm -hmm. popular works. But the Broadway producers, Fran and Barry Weisler, were so impressed with uh, the Encores production that they were able to take the show on with pretty much no competition. Yeah, yeah. And that that was Annie who got that. She was the one who understood that like a bare bones staging would actually allow the choreography to carry the story and sort of like sharpen its edges. And I think that's sort of baked into the way we think of the Fosse aesthetic generally now, too. Um, I think that's also thanks in part to the Broadway show Fosse, which of course, and ranking was that part of that production top to bottom too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so it's so precise. And it just really doesn't need the bells and whistles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, if you couldn't tell, we love this show. We hope it never goes away. Please do read the Times feature talking to all of these stage legends, which we have, of course, linked in the show notes. Next up today, we wanted to get into an idea that sounds like utter common sense and also like something out of a sci-fi novel simultaneously, somehow. Last week, the UN Climate Change Conference happened in Glasgow, Scotland, and in the same city, a club called SWG3 was getting ready to try out new technology that can convert dancing clubbers' body heat into renewable energy. Um, the technology, which is created by a company called Town Rock Energy, it captures the heat generated by you know these thousands of dancing clubgoers and then allows it to be reused to either heat or cool the club. So it's like the power of dance, literally, the literal power of dance. And I'm more than a little obsessed with this idea. Yeah, the literal power of dance. I just love that. <laughs> Here's how it works, essentially. So the club has air collectors in the ceiling to absorb the heat that clubbers generate on the floor. This is standard, but typically the heat that those collectors would capture is carried outside the building, which creates waste. And that's what would happen with traditional heating technology, which used gas boilers. So instead, body heat is taken from the ceiling and transported into one of 17 large boreholes, and each one is drilled as far as 650 feet deep. And from there, the heat warms the surrounding rocks, which function as kind of heat batteries. Um, And the energy can also cool the club down when it's hot without needing air conditioning, Um, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, really, really innovative and interesting. And another thing this reminds me of is the sustainable dance floor, which is... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, I think that was in the news back in like 2008 or so. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an energy-efficient dance floor that's made by a company in the Netherlands called Energy Floors, um, fittingly. (laughs) But yeah, overall, this has really interesting implications for green energy and nightlife and theater. Like, will we see something like a New York City theater greening grant being used for this in the future? What potential is there for for costumes even to incorporate thermoelectric technology later on? Um, Like, in just the past few years, there have been wearable items like a t-shirt and a wristband that can, Mm -hmm. you know, that can do that that can convert body heat to electricity. So it's it's an interesting space. Yeah. I mean, the idea of harvesting human body heat for energy is very sort of matrixy, but it's also totally real. It's actually happening already. And yeah, as you were saying, Lydia, if, if we can figure out ways to do this sustainably on a broader scale, it could be kind of game changing. Um, all I can think about now is like all the summers I spent in heavily air conditioned dance studios mm. when 
all of us dancers were generating all this heat energy that was totally wasted and then additional energy was expended to cool the air. Closing that loop, like harnessing the energy of the body itself, that's so brilliant. Yeah. And nobody makes more body heat than dancers. Yeah. I wonder even maybe even the body heat of people who are just sitting in the audience too, even mm-hmm. though of course it won't mm-hmm. be as much, but yeah. But it's something. Yeah. It's something. Yeah. Don't don't let it go to waste. Um, anyway, this is a fascinating model with potentially wide-ranging repercussions. So we've got, there's a BBC story about it and also a Fast Company story um, about this club's experiment that we have linked in the show notes. So finally today, we'd like to talk about costumes, which is a topic that tends to elicit a lot of passion from people on all sides of the dance world, dancers, audience members, designers, choreographers, you name it. So Dance Magazine posted a short but fascinating story online this week about what makes a quote-unquote good dance costume. And the piece asked a wardrobe supervisor, a dancer, and a dance critic that question and got naturally very different responses. And actually, Lydia, you and I, as people who are or have been dancers and audience members and, and dance journalists, I think we have an interesting perspective on these questions too. Yeah, I for me the best costumes are the ones that make you feel connected to the character as you envision it to be. Um mm. as a dancer they support your unique portrayal and even if you're doing a piece in which there is no story, you'll probably have an idea of what you want to convey. Um so I think mm. it helps the production as a whole too when the costume aligns with and enhances the dancer's ability to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And John Taylor's comment comes to mind where he said that a a good costume incorporates the concept, the right fabric, and a conversation with the dancer. Mm -hmm. Those are really key elements. Yeah, yeah. You know, one perspective that isn't in this story is a choreographer's point of view. And I think that side of the discussion is also fascinating because the ways that a costume can or like should, again, heavy quotation marks, complement or enhance or expand on a choreographer's vision for a dance work. Different choreographers have totally different approaches to this. Some seem not to care about costumes at all. Some have developed long-term relationships with costume designers who just like get their vision. Like I'm thinking of Paul Taylor and Santa Laquasto who worked together for years. Mm. Some enjoy collaborating with visual artists who maybe don't have a ton of experience with costume design and seeing what that generates. Like, you know, the Merce Cunninghams of the world who did Merce Cunningham did so much with that. And then some, I mean, we talked about this in our discussion of the New York City Ballet Gala where Sidra Bell gave designer Christopher John Rogers essentially free reign and said, hey, I will build my dance around your costumes. The costumes actually came first in the process, which is also fascinating. Lydia, I know you said you were thinking a lot about that piece. Yeah, those costumes really have just kind of stuck in my mind and how how central they were to the dance and how that relationship between you know the costumes and the dance was so strong. Mm-hmm. At least I felt like it was it was really strong. Um, and they were just so visually striking. Yeah, totally. I also think this is a totally different tack, but I think there's another conversation to be had about costumes versus regalia. Because mm-hmm. in Native American dance forms, the dancer's clothing is not a costume. They're not pretending to be anyone else. Their regalia is an expression of self, um, which is that way of thinking about what is on your body as you're performing. I think is also really important to recognize. Anyway, there's so much to talk about here. We've linked to the original Dance Magazine story, but 
We'd also love to hear your thoughts on costume design, on what makes for an effective costume and how costuming can enrich a dance. So let us know on Instagram at the.dance.edit or Twitter at dance underscore edit if you are so inclined. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks everyone for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Bye everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.